Hello everyone. The first thing I'd like to say is this is um, very much a work in progress. What we're looking at here is a uh, computer graphic representation of the winter solstice of 1999. And as you can see, there's an interesting alignment with the galaxy here. It was particularly interesting uh, winter solstice because it was also a perigree, which is when the moon is at its closest, as well as being a, a full moon at the winter solstice. But we'll come back to that a little bit later. I've titled the, the talk The Prophetic Alliance of the uh, Druid and Maya calendars because I hope to be able to make sort of case for the congruence of what I call natural time calendars. So there's a distinction I'd like to make at the beginning which helps to explain a little bit about why something like a calendar might have a really considerable impact on the way that we see the universe. At the moment we're living with a calendar which is only based on the solar year. It's the only, uh, and of course the, de the, uh, the, the day, but basically the day and the solar year are the only units of time that it's really looking at and that has a uh, consequence for our, our cosmological out outlook and uh, I'm going to be contrasting that with uh, some ancient calendars so I'm going to be drawing from the uh, ancient megalithic uh, calendars or what we know of them or what has been reconstructed of them and also talking a little bit about the Maya calendar system so uh, this is a pretty good place to begin certainly the beginning of my personal journey Stonehenge and uh, now widely agreed to have astronomical and calendrical significance. I said in the uh, blurb for the talk that I'd be talking about some of the alignments at Stonehenge but I, I really am, I'm just going to talk about one of the, the most simple actually which is this one which is really the, the major axis of orientation for the whole site and as you can see it's the uh, summer solstice sunrise to winter solstice sunset alignment and uh, it's also interesting to note that close to the summer solstice sunrise just to the edge of the avenue about here is the point of the most northerly point of the lunar standstill so that's pretty interesting to me I'm particularly interested in uh, the winter solstice and uh, that's something I'm going to come back to throughout the talk is the significance of the winter solstice and that, that I think plays an important role both in the Druid and the Maya calendars so this is an extension of this line taken right across the planet. So that's the alignment at Stonehenge. That's another interesting thing to observe. It cuts through a few more powerful and interesting places, including the uh, birthplace of the Mexican culture, the Toltec culture, Teotihuacan. Uh, the lunar standstill is where the, the, most, nor the most northern point of the, the uh, sunset of the, of the moon, and that moves across the landscape according to a 18.61 year cycle so that that would be the the most northerly point so it's, it's just really to, at this point just to draw attention to a lunar and solar connection to that alignment so this is Stonehenge pretty early on the uh, first phase was just the the delineation of the circle but the second phase was the creation of these 56 post holes that are now known as the Aubrey holes there's another view. This is a, a photograph which was taken in the 70s before the Aubrey holes were actually covered over. There's been quite a lot of calendrical sort of attributions made to that. Chance to have these work. The Sun, Moon, and Stonehenge is excellent. But I would like to read a little bit about the Aubrey holes from this journal, which is a, and an article written by Jeff Stray, no less. 
And um, just talking about the Eclipse computer, and I haven't really found it expressed anywhere better, so I'm just going to read uh, what he says. The Eclipse computer would have functioned by moving four markers around the Aubrey hole circle of 56 holes. One would represent the sun, and another would represent the moon, and these would both travel in the same direction around the circle, but at different speeds, just as they do around the ecliptic. The sun marker would move two Aubrey holes every 13 days, and the moon marker would move two Aubrey holes each day. The two nodal markers representing the moon's nodes, or points of the intersection with the ecliptic, directly opposite each other, would move in the opposite direction to the sun and moon markers at the rate of three holes per year. The lunar marker is checked and adjusted twice per month by aligning the moon marker opposite the sun marker at full moon, uh, with the sun marker at new moon. The sun marker is adjusted at solstices and equinoxes to the relevant Aubrey hole at northeast, northwest, southeast or southwest. So actually, just with 56 simple holes or posts, you can create a very sophisticated calendar which is totally adequate for calculating the eclipse cycle. So this is going into just the purely, uh, purely lunar calendars, and uh, we can go all the way back to approximately 15,000 BC, and uh, what we have here is suggested to be the earliest known lunar calendar, which is quite simply these dots that you can see down here. And uh, there are 29 of them, which uh, corresponds approximately to the period of lunation. So lunation is 29 and a half days, but uh, with a 29 day count you can have a pretty good estimate of where the moon is going to be and this little horseshoe here is suggested to be the period in which the moon isn't actually visible. So possibly, you know, a reasonably sophisticated uh, lunar calendar 15,000 years BC. This is uh, an illustration by Ormangandam Melchizedek and it's his, his take on uh, the dynamics of the Earth and the, the Moon and uh, what I'm going to talk about now is a series of relationships between the Sun and the Earth and the Moon. With the calendar we have at the moment we're kind of obsessed by one astronomical unit which is the year and that's a bit unfortunate from the point of view of integrating anything other than the Earth's rotation around the Sun because there isn't an exact number of moons per year. So what I'm going to do in this next section is I'm going to look at ways that you can actually integrate the dance of the Sun and the Moon, which is the point at which the same phase of the Moon returns to the same day of the solar year. And some very interesting things start to happen when you do that. If you actually kind of break out of this uh, limited horizon of the solar year, you begin to get a quite different perspective on the solar system that we're living in. And you get some quite magical new perceptions appearing. So first of all, as I said, there isn't quite a whole number of, of moons in, or full moons in a solar year. At least there isn't an arithmetic solution. Uh, Robin Heath has actually uh, come up with a brilliant geometric solution, which he attributes to the Druids, which is called the Lunation Triangle. And that's one way of uh, resolving it. But if you want to look at bigger cycles in which the Sun and Moon return to approximately the same place in the sky, these are some really interesting places to look at. Now, first of all, you can look at the three-year cycle, which is pretty simple. 37 lunations are approximately three years. And it's actually not really too far off, just 0 0.03 away from the actual value. Then you move to the five-year cycle. And the five-year cycle is actually a little bit further away. It's about 4.7 days out. 
but I'll be coming back to that one later because I think that one actually had a really significant role to play in megalithic history. The next one is the eight-year 99 lunation cycle and this one is particularly spectacular. There's some really interesting math magic with this one and uh, we'll take a look at that one. And then finally there's the 19-year cycle which is uh, really out of all of those the most precise. It's uh, to the third decimal place and uh, it, it's known as the Metonic cycle after the Greek discoverer of, the, um, of this particular cycle but as we were showing us that it, this is um, something which was definitely known to several ancient cultures way before Greek. The name of the eight-year cycle is a couple of names. There's the Mithric cycle or the Octaterus and basically what it is is that 99 lunations is very close to eight solar years and very, very close to five Venus synodic periods. So it's a bringing together of the Sun, Moon, Earth and Venus and it does it really, really well. Now, there's some very interesting hints that this was known in megalithic times. For instance, there are 99 stones in Avery Main Circle. So possible evidence for that being incorporated into that particular sacred site. What can you do by knowing about the eight-year cycle? Well, um, this is a quote taken from an Irish text of the 8th century, and it's talking about what is really required to be a druid. For each day, five items of knowledge are required of everyone, with no appearance of boasting, who would be a leader. The day of the solar month, the age of the moon, the state of the sea tide, the day of the week, the calendar of the feast, feast of the deities. And all of these things are achievable just by keeping that eight-year cycle going. So actually what we can see is this cycle and really following Venus in the sky is a really, really good way of uh, keeping a calendar calibrated that is accurate to following um, all of these five different items of knowledge. So this is a significant quotation from a fairly original text. Another interesting relationship to the eight-year cycle which is taken from the work of Andreas Zabo. He's a specialist on the Torah and the um, mathematics of the Torah and what he is proposing is that the Torah and actually the uh, Ten Commandments of Moses are actually very much related to this cycle and what he does is he shows a mathematical relationship between two uh, eight-year cycles which is a 198 lunations and ten synodic periods, periods of Venus and if you want to um, follow work up further, I, I really suggest you investigate the Torah Cosmos because it's really, it's really outstanding work. So, you know, possibly observed in the Jewish tradition. So, pretty much as far as I'd like to go with that now because it's quite involved. Some more facts about the relationship between Venus and uh, the eight-year period. So, a year has about um, five times 73 days and the Venus visibility cycle has a cycle of eight times eight times 73 days. So in an octoterrace there are eight years, the eight years are equivalent to five Venus visibility cycles. Also interestingly, 13 Venusian years equals pretty much eight Earth years, it's kind of like about a day or so difference. And uh, another interesting fact about Venus which is related to the eight year cycle is that the transits of Venus where it crosses between us and the Sun occur exactly eight halves apart and that's a, uh, the, the Maya calendar which is a 365 day calendar so it's a day uh, calendar which is working to that cycle. So these are all pretty remarkable cycles that we 
don't really have any connection with if we're just locked into this concept of the solar year. This is an illustration of what Venus actually appears to do in the sky uh, during that period. So basically it, it transcribes a, a five-pointed star in the heavens. So interesting to observe these, the numbers here. Five, eight and thirteen. Um, these come up loads in all the different calendars that I'm going to be talking about. These numbers are really key in the investigation of prophecy which I'm talking about because this isn't prophecy which is just pulled out of the ether. The idea of this kind of prophecy is really uh, prophecy which is related to a mathematical understanding of the universe. This is an idea of there being a communication, like a two-way conversation that we can have with our um, universe simply by appreciating and understanding these patterns which exist in it. So now we're moving on to the, um, the metonic cycle. And the metonic cycle is named after Meton, a Greek uh, astronomer, who discovered it within that culture. And this is a very accurate integration of the, of the sun and the moon. So, you know, it's accurate to just an hour or so, which is, is pretty remarkable. Third decimal point, basically. And um, there are some interesting alignments with this number 19. 19 stones in the Stonehenge Bluestone Horseshoe and uh, the Gorsheads held inside circles of 19 stones. Again, I give credit to Jeff for his work. Finding uh, 19 alignments in uh, five different cornerstone circles. So this is something which is definitely a significant number in the uh, indigenous megalithic culture. It's something which is, is there, in my opinion. Also known by lots of different cultures way before the Greek. For instance, uh, this is a early Shang Dynasty moon calendar from China and it's uh, just inscribed on bone and this is a metonic calendar this follows a 19 year cycle the 19 year cycle is also found in the Jewish calendar and this is quite an interesting examination for people who still believe that somehow uh, previous generations of, of people on this planet were a bit intellectually impaired compared to us. You know, this is a perspective that a lot of people seem to have is that you know, when we examine the uh, archaeological sites of different cultures that somehow they're not really quite as smart as us. I was, um, I'm following some uh, discussions about the Nebra disc, if anyone's come across that disc that was found in Germany with uh, depictions of the, uh, the sun, the moon and the stars on it. It's actually a very accurate device for measuring the uh, winter and summer solstice from uh, that particular area and some of the people who are investigating that are suggesting that megalithic man couldn't possibly have been uh, abstract enough to think about the possibility of the sun going through the, the field of stars because he wouldn't have been able to see it. But um, the Antikythera mechanism is really quite an extraordinary artefact. It was found from a shipwreck, a uh, shipwrecked Greek ship and dated to about, I think, one century BC. And you can't really tell very much about um, what it actually looks like here, but it's a very, very complex series of gears. And what it really is, is an analogue computer. So that's the opposite to a digital computer. It's basically a gearing mechanism for calculating different relationships of the sun and the moon in relationship to the zodiac. So it's just basically a series of dials that were adjusted that allows you to find the interrelationships between all of these different positions. This is pretty much what it looked like. So this is the most complex geared mechanism from any ancient culture ever found. Some gearing mechanisms in the centre there which are calibrated to the metonic cycle. 
they're um, actually working with the sidereal lunations rather than the synodic lunations. But um, pretty strong evidence that uh, ancient cultures had a bit more of a cosmologically developed outlook than we perhaps give them credit for. What's it made of? Uh, good question, it's metal. So really the purpose of showing you these things is just to sort of like uh, get a little bit out of our cultural prejudice that we somehow, because we have um, technology uh, of a particular kind, have a understanding of the, the universe which is superior to the cultures that preceded us. This is a, a quote from a Roman historian, Dodos Sicilis, which is a well-known quotation about the Druidic cultures. It's quite funny going to the Romans for uh, information about our own culture. And it's quite a parallel actually with the, the Mayan culture because a lot of the information which we have is actually from, uh, for instance, uh, Bishop Delanda, who uh, wrote a very famous book on the uh, Maya people, who was exactly the same person that uh, just a few years previously had burnt three million of their books. So, you know, there's an expression, history is written by the uh, victors, and it's questionable as to whether or not uh, we can really accredit all of, the, uh, all, all of the things the Romans were saying uh, at face value. But it is interesting to actually look at what they were saying and then to compare that with other you know, evidence that we can draw from the indigenous culture and from the stone circles. So um, what Diodorus was saying was that in these islands he found a, a temple sacred to Apollo, which uh, a notable temple decorated with many offerings and looking like a globe. Well, uh, quite possibly the temple which we showed at the beginning of this slideshow. It is said that the god returns to the island every 19 years, the period when the stones complete their cycle. So I think that's pretty compelling evidence that Stonehenge was used as a Metonic calendar. Some people have said, well, it's related to the lunar standstill, which is a different cycle, it's 18.61 years, but there you are, 19 years, the Metonic cycle, and you know, we don't really have that much more evidence for what was actually happening calendrically at that particular time, apart from what we can interpret from the stones themselves. This is an interesting sort of take on, on things as well, because at the moment we think of our calendar as basically being a yearly calendar, and it's to do with the sun, and that's what it's really about. We're obsessed basically about the length of the year. Uh, we've got atomic clocks that are measuring it to like 65 decimal places. But actually, beyond that, and in the background, what we've got is we've got a lunar calendar. And it's not very well known, but it's basically uh, really important to the people that run the uh, calendar that is currently the world's civil standard. It's a Masonic calendar. It's a 19-year lunar calendar, and it's used by the Vatican to set the date of Easter. Now, it's not publicised by them, but it is actually really, really important. And it's really interesting to look back at the history of Christian calendrics. And I'm, I've been particularly interested in the Orthodox Christian churches because they're actually um, they've got quite a different take on the Julian calendar. That's the, the predecessor of the Gregorian calendar which we now have. They consider the Julian calendar to be a pagan calendar, which is a good argument for that. It's, uh, it's basically derived from the calendar of Rome and then was adopted by the, uh, the Roman church. So uh, not actually a Christian calendar. And what they suggest was the original Christian calendar was a Matonic calendar. And this is also to be found in the Jewish lunar calendar. It's basically a uh, lunar calendar which is calibrated to a 19 year cycle. The way that it works with their solar calendar is that 
it basically repeats over a, a, a longer period, which has nothing to do with millennium. It's basically a 532-year cycle called the Great Indiction. And how this works is that for each year, there's something called a golden number. And this is basically the number in the Metonic cycle. And it's found by adding one to the year number, so 2005, you add up to 2006. You divide that by 19 and it gives you a number from 0 to 19. And that's basically the golden number. And the uh, dominical, dominical letter of the year is the, a, a, a letter which is attributed to the year according to the uh, day of the week on which the year begins. So that follows a series of 28 uh, years. So what you've actually got is you've got a 532-year repeating cycle within the Christian calendar. And that's actually uh, how the current calendar works, only it's not really publicised as such. So a 532-year calendar. And uh, actually, from that point of view, we're not in the 21st century. We're in the 15th indiction, which started in 1941. So that's you know, another example of a Metonic moon calendar. The Metonic cycle is probably the most important one, I think. But there are a couple of other cycles which are building up on that. The first one's called the Calypic cycle, and that's basically just four Metonic cycles. But it's even more accurate than the Metonic cycle. It's down to a few minutes at this point. So if you really want to get, like, accurate, this is the, the basically, like, you want to be cal calibrating in these 76-year, 940 lunation cycles. And that's pretty much what the Greeks did. And we're talking about the same culture that produced that analog computer that you saw earlier. So a really, really high level of calendrical sophistication going on here. Interesting fact is that the Calypic cycle actually reconciles the, solar the Julian solar calendar with its leap year cycle and the Jewish lunar calendar. So they actually come together after a 76 year period. So, you know, at the moment we've actually reduced down our focus to this very, very linear year-upon-year calendar and we've lost sight of all of these bigger cycles of integration which are happening and the way that we're kind of conditioned to think about it is it's an awkward fraction you know these awkward fractions so wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to have uh, if we had a whole number of days in the year why can't it just be 365 and why can't we have 12 moons or 13 moons why has it got to be an awkward number but actually if you look at these awkward numbers what you can get is you can get real insight into the nature of where we are and the nature of our universe. Little numbers are basically not just remainders to be ignored and discarded. They're really the keys into actually opening up and unlocking uh, understanding of, of time. And time is something which is like so uh, absolutely pervasive in, in uh, you know, everything exists in time. So there's one more cycle which is the Hipparchic cycle. This is four Calypic cycles, another bigger cycle, minus one day. And that's 304 years, very nearly 3,760 moons. Why am I interested in these cycles? It's all very obscure. Um, well, yeah. Originally, when I was looking at these calendrical cycles, my understanding of the Druidic indigenous cultures of, of this land and the indigenous calendar of this land, and some insights that I had from studying the Maya calendar, and really, the, the astronomical cycle I'm particularly interested in with the Maya calendar is precession. That's the precession of the equinoxes. And it's interesting to observe that Hipparchus, the Greek astronomer, was the discoverer in that culture of precession, as well as this bigger cycle. So um, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about precession.
But before I do that, I'd like to talk about, well, the evidence, really, is what I would call it. Um, it's very interesting that in, Dru in Druid calendrics, you can talk to Druids and you can talk to people who are, you know, kind of interested in the subject matter, and um, they'll talk about the 13 moon calendar that Robert Graves basically reconstructed. There's the, the, a notion that, well, not really any kind of information about what was happening in megalithic times survived. I think that can be contested, and I'm going to show some interesting information here. This is a picture of Newgrange, the inside of Newgrange, and from the sites in that valley, there's now been a lot of evidence for, for, cal for you know, megalithic calendars coming forward. And um, a lot of them are based on this 62 lunation to five year cycle. It's not really as accurate as the Metonic cycle. There's a 4.7 day difference between 62 lunations and five years. But actually, it appears to be what was actually used in megalithic times. This is something that I found from the uh, research of Anthony Murray. And he's got a really good website, which is called mythicalisland.com. Really well presented, very, uh, very simple. What you can see here is, it's called Curbstone 15. And it was found in the Boyne Valley, uh, near the Newgrange site. And what he is suggesting here is what we're looking at is a megalithic calendar. Now, this is an outline of the markings on the calendar. These crescents and these full circles here, it basically he's suggesting that this is how the moon was counted. In fact, there are 29 of these. And in the middle, you've got this wavy line. Well, the wavy line has 31 bends in it. That means that it's basically got 62 ends. So how it would be counted is that you go around counting a lunation, 29 days, and then you move up one of these. So basically, it's a calendar for counting in cycles of 62 and 29. This is 3000 BC, and uh, I think good evidence for a 62 lunation five-year cycle being observed by a megalithic culture, and it works. There are other curbstones which have been found there. This is another one which he talks about. This one, according to his research, basically shows lunar cycles of 27 and 29 days. So 27 is the closest whole number to the sidereal lunation. Now it's the period in which it takes the moon to go into the same place in the sky. And 29 is the synodic lunation, and that's the time it takes for the moon to go to full to full. So again, sophisticated calendrical knowledge from a megalithic culture. I find this, this really interesting, and I think actually it's been uh, quite unfairly ignored by a lot of the megalithic researchers. You know, there's, there's still this idea that there's no calendrical information out there. This is also a really, another major artifact, which is uh, extremely significant. This is 3,000 years later than the calendar you saw previously, and it's called the Caligny calendar. It was um, excavated in France, and um, basically it was created about, um, I think, the first century AD, and this was just before the uh, Roman domination of Gaul and the period in which the Roman influence was very, very strong. And what it actually shows is a calendar, these are basically fragments of it, it shows a calendar which is 
written in the Roman script but in the Gaulish language. So it's like one of these kind of like um, Rosetta Stone kind of crossover, um, crossover ideas. I came to study this a few years ago and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, I've, I read some of the theories about it and basically the, the general consensus amongst uh, megalithic historians was that it was messy. Didn't quite work. Robert Graves actually ignored this calendar. He said, well, you know, it's a later thing and he didn't really agree with, agree with it. But there's been some really excellent research recently which has decoded and deconstructed this. This is a close-up on one of the surviving sections. And what you can see here is a close-up on, on the moon. And these holes here, basically, there's a name of the moon there, Roman numerals, and holes punched for the days of Luna, the new nation. The whole of the tablet doesn't survive, so we can't actually tell if each of the days was 29 or 30, but some survive, and there are 29 and 30 there. So that's, um, that's quite a common way of measuring lunations, alternating 29 and 30 as a whole number, because 29.5 is actually the is actually the number of a synodic lunation. This is um, work done by Martin Dutre, and he's uh, based in New Zealand. He's done a lot of work with the sites in New Zealand, but he also uh, has done some really outstanding work on alignments of Stonehenge, Druid, Calendrix, and this is his take on the Caligny calendar. Now there's been some discussion, is it 64 lunar months or is it 62 lunar months. And I think that he really conclusively proves that it's 62. And obviously, 62 suits me pretty good because that fits into the 62 lunar months equals five solar years. So you can see you've got the different names in Gaulish of the, uh, the moons, counting down, and you've got these two extra periods here called Cialis. And uh, Martin Dutra comes up with a really good explanation of what the Cialos are and this is because he's got a perspective where he can see that there's a, a sophisticated, intelligent and accurate calendar system working here. Again, we're, it's so easy to look through, look at ancient cultures and artifacts like this through the eyes of our prejudice. Oh well, it's kind of messy because we can't really understand why 62 or 64 lunar months might be important. But actually, it's, it's a really accurate calendar. What he shows is that one Cialis is 45-notch sequence, the other is a 46-notch sequence. What if, where does that fit into the moon cycle? Well, the answer is it doesn't. It's actually a solar calendar. So uh, the Cialis is basically one sixteenth of the year. And basically what you would do is you count one Cialis, which is 45 days, and then you count 50, sorry, 45 and then 46 days. This gives you 91 days. Now, if you're working with a solar calendar, which is based on uh, the, the eight fire festivals, which is you know, something which is, survives in contemporary Druidry, and we all know about the winter solstices, the uh, equinoxes, and uh, the fire festivals in between, then if you uh, make a circle of the year, and you divide that circle up into eight, you can very easily come up with uh, divisions of 91 between each of those eight sections. Now that gives you a circle of 360, 364, sorry. So this is basically just a, a way of counting the solar year with the lunar, sorry, the 62 lunation five year cycle on the same, engraved on the same tablet. So that brings us to the solar druid year. This is some of the things that we, that we know about 
the solar druid calendar. As I said, eight fire festivals, eight stations of the year. Also broadly di divided into two halves, uh, Beltane to Samhain, two uh, different halves of the year. There's a lot of mythological evidence for that. And then you've got this idea of 16 Sialas alternating between 45 days and 46 days in between each of the eight fire festivals. Then on top of that, you've got 72 further subdivisions of five days each with five days out of time at the end of the year, which is actually what we came back to at the beginning when we were talking about the eight-year cycle, that 73 times five cycle again. And uh, one thing I'd like to suggest is bringing uh, the Oum tree alphabet into it. If you go back to the original first known Oum alphabet, the Beth Lewis Neon, it was, it was constituted of 13 consonants and five vowels. So <coughs> it's, it's a hypothesis at this point, but basically a possible correlation with this repeating five-day cycle and the vowels of the Oum. Again, this is a this is a picture of a graphic representation of, of what I'm talking about. Basically, different seasons created by two Cialis, 91 days each. Some more general factual information about uh, what what we know from the Roman historians about the Druid calendars. Druid days measured from sunset, so actually, like really the night. That was the, the, it was the it's kind of like the the names of the day are like uh, it's the night, and then the, the day that precedes is the day following the night. So um, that's a quote from Pliny the Elder. He said that the Druids collect mistletoe on the sixth day of the moon from whence they date the beginning of their months of their years and of their 30-year cycle. Yep, 30 years is a bit of a funny one because it doesn't really fit into the, the measurements that we were looking at earlier with the Metonic cycle and the return of the sun and the moon. But interestingly enough, it does fit with the Muslim lunar calendar, which does have a 30-year cycle. And how that works is that for the first 19 years, they observe a lunation period of 29 days. And after that, they do an 11-year cycle uh, with moons of 30 days. And that works pretty good. So it's also interesting to note that the Caligny calendar also shows that the, the days were named um, for the nights. So, you know, we, we have some actual, you know, cross-referencing here. And I think that when we can find that, that's, you know, that's the best evidence that we could possibly hope for. I've kind of made the pun on nights here because that interests me. You know, I, I think that uh, we're going to come to the Arthurian mythos in a little while, and I think that the fact that Druids counted from the knights might, might be some way relevant. Intercalation. At the moment, there's no really clear evidence for how intercalary periods would be calculated with the solar calendars. Murray Hope puts forward the idea that a 366 day would be added every four years. It's pretty obvious, pretty accurate way of doing it. It's what we do in the Gregorian calendar. Um, I'm suggesting a possibility which is not quite as accurate, but um, the thesis that I'm really working towards, or, or the, uh, the kind of assumption that I'm working with, is that the Metonic cycle, this 19 year cycle, is really important. And if you take five days every 19 years as a sort of jubilee year, then you can reconcile the two calendars pretty accurately. You need to do some other calculations at longer periods, but I'm interested in that. I had a look at the book Uriel's Machine recently, and uh, there was a suggestion there that Julius Caesar took his idea for the Julian calendar from the Druids. Well, uh, and the idea of intercalation, in fact, came from uh, the, the Druid calendar sciences. I would suggest that if the best he could do was a Julian calendar, he really wasn't paying attention. 
you know, the, the, the Druids had a much more sophisticated calendrical science. So the idea that somehow that, that the calendar we have as a Druidic calendar doesn't really seem to hold up to much examination. This is just kind of bringing us back to the idea of prophecy and the relationship that it has to these, these number cycles. I like this quote. This is from Valerius Maximus. And he's talking about these uh, crazy British people. For it's said that they lend to each other sums that are repayable in the next world. So firmly convinced are they that the souls of men are immortal. And I would call them foolish indeed if it not were for the fact that these trousered barbarians believe in the very faith of Pythagoras himself. It has actually been suggested that where Pythagoras learnt his information was from the Druids. I don't know if that's the case at all, but it's the Pythagorean nature of the Druids' calendar that was thought to be the key to its power of prophecy. So, you know, we've gone very abstract here. I mean, it's like, it's basically, it's maths, uh, you know, looking at cycles which might seem obscure. But really the point of this is that there is power in understanding these cycles. And, you know, perhaps that's why we don't have access to them now. So, you know, just to recap the uh, stuff that I've been talking about, important Pythagorean numbers 5, 8, 13 and 19. I'm particularly interested in this cycle which is called the perigree, which is really when the moon's at its closest. And one of the observations I made is that every seven metonic cycles you get a perigree conjunction, which is to say that a perigree will fall at the same time as the conclusion of a metonic cycle every 133 years. And this brings us back to this image, which was right at the beginning of the talk, which is the Winter Solstice 99 conjunction. Because what was particularly interesting about this is that it's a full moon, it's a perigree, and in this particular case, it wasn't just the time that the moon was the closest for that particular month, it was actually the time that it was closest for the year and for more. So it was very close. In fact, it hadn't been closer for at least eight to nine years, and even that was quite unusual. So the reason I'm interested in this is because I think that what the Druid calendars do really well, or um, you know, this, this broad range of calendars that I'm talking about here do really well, is that they measure the uh, relationship between the Sun, the Moon, the Earth, and planets like Venus very, very accurately. But there's one, there's one cycle which they don't quite measure, which is the processional cycle. So I'm interested in building up these cycles, the, the metonic cycles, I'm interested in things like the calypic and the hipparchic cycles, because my intuition is that if procession is what we're told it is, which is that procession is caused by the influences of the moon and the sun on the bulge of the earth, that there should be some sort of numerical and harmonic connection between the, these cycles. Now, if you've just got a solar year calendar, it, it's impossible to see that. But if you go back to observing that in an eight-year period, you get four synodic Venus cycles, you get 13 Venusian years, you get 99 lunations, it seems pretty clear to me that what we're actually dealing with is pretty much like a harmonic universe. And it's quite s simple to make peregrine observations because the size of the moon is going to increase or decrease by plus or minus 14%. So that's something that, you know, that could easily be measured. From working with the Druid calendar, which gives a very insightful view of the Metonic cycle, it's, you know, the, the relationship between the sun and the moon, I thought, well, maybe these things are actually related at that level. And if the prophetic calendar of the, of the Druids, rather, 
is a Pythagorean calendar which is based on these cycles and we know that the, the Maya uh, had a prophetic calendar from the fact that they left prophecies uh, well maybe we can join the two up and that we can actually see that what they're describing isn't Mayan or Druid it's actually knowledge about the natural world so you know, the, you know the idea is that prophecy isn't something which is mediated by priests it's a naturally occurring phenomenon you know if we are able to shift our perspective out of a very limited mechanical and artificial worldview that we can begin to get information from that worldview which appears to people as, as prophetic you know it's just basically a natural phenomenon so I think it's really interesting to uh, to look at the cycle of procession and to talk about its impact on our worldview because the notion of the zodiac is also very closely related to this and the movement through uh, zodiacal ages is a very important idea to astrology and actually this is a, a worldview which is pretty much medieval because it's based on a geocentric universe the idea is basically that the sun is out there and it's moving against the, the, the star band in a circle and that's something that's reiterated all of the time I mean every time that we talk about our personality archetypes from Aries or Taurus that's basically the, um, the worldview which we're engaging with so it's something which actually isn't just an abstract it's something which actually has an impact on people's uh, beliefs about themselves and their beliefs about the world that they live in and it's pretty much derived from a flat world geocentric viewpoint I also got really fascinated by the fact that if you want to go out there and find accurate figures about what's happening with procession it's really not that easy I mean do a search on Google you know like the great research tool of our age and you know, you'll find that a lot of the conventional sites are quoting figures for procession which are not accurate at all uh, 26,000 years is often talked about well that's close but it's not really what's happening the more I looked at procession the more questions came up about it it's basically known that this apparently simple circular motion isn't actually really that simple there are other little wobbles in there which some of which are accounted for but others of which are not there are things like natation and uh, Chandler's wobble which are basically uh, caused by the relationship between the earth and the moon but there are also other factors called uh, obliquity and eccentricity which don't appear to be so it's all a bit technical at that point but it's basically a not quite as a set thing as we would like to think that it is and you might believe that from the way the procession is described which is basically this model, this circle in the sky that we actually had evidence for the fact that this has happened before but actually we don't I want to show you a chart this is basically all of the scientific data, accurate scientific data that we have for procession that our culture has and it amounts to exactly 100 years worth and what it actually shows is pretty interesting because the rate of procession is changing at a really quite dramatic rate um, back in 1900 the Simon Newcomb came up with a, a way of measuring procession which was much more accurate than any method that had been discovered by modern science and basically to the second decimal point he was able to calculate that the rate of procession at that time was 25,000 years 787 and uh, using that analysis um, modern science has been able to look at these um, processional rates which basically continued in a straight line until about 1980 
and then um, sort of like deviated from that norm. So, you know, it's uh, it's changing, and it's changing at a rate which is basically more than 11 years per century. So, this is pretty radical stuff. It's actually enough to suggest that the current theory of lunar solar precession is questionable because the influence of the moon and the sun on the bulge of the earth appears to be not enough to actually be causing this effect. Now, I'm indebted for this diagram from a very interesting website which is called the Sirius Research Group and I highly recommend checking out their information. My long background was as an astronomer, so when I encountered this research group I was a bit like, um, okay, I've seen this before. Because the thesis behind the Sirius Research Group's work is the idea that our solar system is orbiting as a long uh, duration binary Sirius which I found pretty outlandish, really. And, you know, if we were a binary star system, surely one of our um, eminent astronomers would have noticed this fact a little and uh, informed of us. But it's, um, although after having looked at this hypothesis, I'm not actually convinced of it, I think that actually accounting for this acceleration in precession is really a challenge for lunar-solar precession. So, these are some precessional numbers. I wouldn't linger too long on them, but um, the, uh, the actual figure for precession right now is 25770 approximately. Martin Dutre is the guy who came up with the analysis of the Caligny calendar that I talked about earlier. Uh, he's got some interesting correlations with this number, which he calls the classical number of precession, which he says he finds in a lot of megalithic alignments. And he puts that at 25. 920, which is an index of about just over um, 0.58 more than, than what it actually is at the moment. 26,000 years, it's not a bad approximation. It's, you know, it's, it's in the ballpark, 0.89 higher. My goal is to construct some sort of connection or at least you know, prove one way or the other whether or not the <coughs> lunar solar cycles actually have anything to do with precession in some sort of harmonic way. And the best that I've kind of come up with so far is not really, you know, convincing to me particularly, but if you take 198 of those perigree cycles, that's the same number of lunations as the, uh, the uh, Torah cosmos people were talking about, two eight-year cycles. And you put those numbers together, you can come up with a number which is a large number of perigrees, a large number of Metonic cycles, which can come out at about 26,334, but it's more than 2% out. The number that I'm most interested in is the bottom one, which is 25625. And that is basically five times the long count of the Maya. That's the 13 bactum count. So five times 13 bactums is 65 bactums or 26,000 ton. And that is accurate to an index of 99.44, so just just, you know, basically half a percentile different from actual precession. But what's interesting about that is that that was calculated by the people who created that calendar, possibly, if, my, you know, if, if the thesis that it's a processional calendar is correct, more than a thousand years ago. So the hypothesis is, were the Maya 
calculating precession and if they were were they calculating it with compensation for obliquity and eccentricity which I think is really fascinating because this figure the processional figure here only works for the end date of 2012 it doesn't represent the procession when the Maya were actually devising that calendar or at least when the first instances of that calendar were actually found these are some of the alternatives to lunar solar procession that are now being discussed first one is called the dark star theory and the idea is that the solar system is in a long period binary relationship with a brown dwarf or small black hole which is some few hundred to few thousand astronomical units distant exponents of that theory suggest that that this is possible because the location of a dark star or small black hole may actually be even with the Hubble and other telescopes that we have now difficult to determine at that distance I'm yet to be convinced of that because I think that it certainly fits the, the fact of explaining in a way the uh, acceleration of precession but it's a big jump to make the second theory is that we're actually in a long term binary relationship with Sirius and that's pretty far out I and mean, it's quite interesting that that's found in quite a lot of channeled material and I remember reading uh, the Palladian Agenda and being kind of like taken aback by the idea that the uh, solar system was orbiting the Pleiades on a 26,000 year period I simply dismissed it you know it's uh, basically a physical impossibility because the Pleiades are 407 light years distant and it would mean that we'd be travelling at such a rate that we'd certainly notice quite humbling to then discover that the serious binary theory actually fits the mathematical facts as we know them and an astronomer has actually suggested that in addition to orbiting Sirius Sirius and our solar system may in turn be in an orbital relationship with the Pleiades the third theory is that acceleration of precession may be due to galactic gravitational waves I don't know if it's related to the um, galactic superwave theory that's like uh, it's just basically one of the strands which is discussed check out the Sirius research group pretty devastating to lunar solar precession because you know I don't really see how, the, how, how lunar solar precession can account for the acceleration in, in the precessional value the fourth one is kind of my guess of what may possibly be happening without going for the previous three which is just to say, say that curvature is what creates precession so what we now know is that the orbit of our sun is curved and it's curved at such a degree that it's creating an acceleration now the dark star theory and the Sirius theory are working on the presumption that if we're in an acceleration phase and we're in a long binary relationship that actually what will happen is that we will then come into a point where we're going to a deacceleration because that's the, the, the nature of these, of these cycles the thing is we don't have enough experiential data what we know is that the procession is accelerating so it's a very convenient theory uh, it, you know it's like it ties everything up very nicely to suggest that there's a binary which we're orbiting around but you know is that is that really justifiable at this point I don't know I might say this is a big question mark for me at the moment and uh, really derailed my attempt to uh, fit Masonic cycles into the uh, processional 
cycle. In fact, you know, they, they kind of do, but you have to shoehorn them in. Galactic gravitational wave expert? Uh, yeah, basically they're to do with the formation of the centre of the galaxy and the moments at which black holes are created and things go supernova. And uh, when you've got a lot of that going on, which you've got in the centre of the gravity, you can get kind of like waves pulsing out, and then they think they can actually travel down the, down the spiral to the arms. And the right, okay, yeah. cool. This is the glacier. Yeah, glacier. Yeah, and when anything goes, okay, when God, anything God, goes God, supernova. Show that picture mm. <laughs> okay. It's just like a wave on a beach. Moving on to 13 moon calendars now. And um, this is a part of my attempt to join up the processional cycle with other cycles to show actually that there's relationships between the solar lunar cycles and these bigger cycles and um, yeah I'm still going with this hypothesis at this point and um, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about 13 moon calendars now 13 moon calendars have been you know it's it's a a bit of a funny name really because actually what it is is a solar calendar and it divides the solar year into 13 sections of 28 days which leaves you one day out of time so it has been pointed out that you know that's not actually a cycle of the moon there are two cycles of the moon there's the sidereal lunation and there's the synodic lunation exponents of the 13 moon calendar have suggested that well 28 is the is the whole number mean average of those two and therefore you know that's 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 good enough so therefore it's related to a moon what it certainly is is a very uh, useful solar calendar because it divides the year in such a way that you get easy division of half factors into a quarter you get 52 weeks each of the periods of the 13 moons are all the same which is very helpful for exactly four weeks 28 days all of these things are, are really good they're really you know this is a, a harmony and uh, in fact it's not just you know a harmony found in the indigenous calendars the 30 moon calendar was actually uh, proposed by the World Institute of Chartered Accountants uh, as the business calendar and um, this was actually adopted it was a campaign which was led by uh, George Eastman of Eastman Kodak in the 1930s the calendar reform at the League of Nations and the League of Nations actually decided to adopt the 13 moon calendar and the only reason we don't actually use the 13 moon calendar today is because it was vetoed by the Vatican the Vatican said well we uh, reserve the right to um, determine Easter and we believe that if we were to take a day out of the divine succession of the seven-day week, that there would be war and chaos. As you get 52 perfectly ordered weeks. But still, a big question about what this 13 moon story is. Now, I'm actually quite, I'm quite interested in the 13 moon calendars, but I think it's really good to examine where they come from because uh, there's been a kind of a story within the Mayan calendar movement of the 13 moon calendar movement being identified as the Mayan calendar, where actually it's the creation of Jose and Lloyd Arguelles. But within the Druid calendar movement, a lot of people know the Druid calendar movement as being the Robert Graves White Goddess 13 moon calendar, which is an exact parallel, which is basically an invention of Robert Graves. Now he did this with looking at you know, some interesting facts, but, and I'll come to these facts, but actually it's, um, there is no megalithic evidence that I know of to support it. 13 moon calendars, however, are, there's one really good example of an ancient 13 moon calendar which has been continually kept. In fact, the people that keep it say that it's the longest continually held calendar on the planet and that's the uh, Pachacuti count of the Incas. So uh, last year I went to Peru and I met with the flag bearer of the uh, Inca people or he's a representative of some of the elders there and he gave me a calendar 
he actually said that yeah it's uh, sort of 5,510 or whatever but it, actually it's been going on for 26,000 years it's a much much older calendar and it's a 13 moon calendar it's th 13 days uh, 13 moons are 28 days each plus one day out of time it starts on the festival of Intiremi which is the uh, summer solstice well that's the um, solstice in um, June because obviously it's in the southern hemisphere and therefore it's the winter solstice which is a kind of perfect mirror for the Druid calendar which is begun on the winter solstice in uh, the northern hemisphere which is the December solstice and then we have a third uh, ancient uh, 30 moon calendar which is the Lakota count which is the Turtle Island count and that, that actually begins on the spring equinox in the north so that's the March equinox so this is a representation of some indigenous 13 moon calendars this is uh, the Druid Owen and it was from the Druid Owen that Robert Graves decided to reconstruct a 13 moon Druid calendar it's an ancient tree alphabet using uh, these notches definitely the, the oldest known alphabet in Britain Robert Graves actually took the inspiration for the white goddess calendar from his observations with the Owen and the Song of Amagin which is reputed to be the oldest known Irish story or song and he's suggesting that actually it's a calendrical uh, riddle as it were and each of the lines belong to one of the moons so that, that was really where it came from so for instance the, the Roman moon which goes from the 22nd of January to the 18th of February is um, represented by uh, the, the line I am a wide flood on a plain and to that he attributes the uh, tree of Rowan which is um, the basically it's the 13 consonants or the 13 letters of the original Beth Lewis Neon which is the, uh, the shortest of the Owen alphabets so that's where it came from it's, uh, I think there's been quite a lot of misrepresentation of, of, of it as a, an ancient calendar too so it's good to actually get clear about what we're talking about here because it is basically a modern creation this is an adaptation of the 13 moon Owen calendar by a contemporary druid and friend uh, Merlin Forsyth who some of you might know and basically Merlin is a man of the trees and he's been living in trees and living with trees for large part of his adult life and what he did was to take what Robert Graves had done and actually change it a little bit because what he found was that if you make some adjustments to actually what trees are doing then it begins to make more sense so for instance his uh, calendar actually begins with the spindle grove of slumbering seeds each moon the tree of that moon will be doing something significant at that point uh, then it goes on to the birch grove of first shoots uh, the ash grove of rising sap and then the alder grove of opening buds and uh, I think this is really inspiring work because it's someone who's actually following the path of druidry who's actually out there doing it and who's basically like giving us something which we can use in this culture which is effective and useful I mean it, it, this is not about the, the grand thesis of calendrical unification this is about a practical natural time calendar that we can use and I think it's compelling and I think the idea of uh, the day out of time on winter solstice is also a very strong uh, and compelling uh, decision or choice based on the mythological evidence that we have I think that 
the idea of the midwinter as a very special period of the year is found in a lot of different uh, mystery traditions and a lot of ancient religions and I think that a lot of the mythological stories which are told about that time from the Christian through to Graham to other you know other other stories which are representative of the uh, sun and the death of the sun and the return of the sun and sometimes the personification of, of, of um, the sun into a human being are related to this this particularly special period of time so I found this to be an experientially useful and um, effective tool this is a, another version of, it, of the same um, but describing them as moons this time and then you can see also these are the functions that I was talking about like so for instance in snow forming you get seeds and then shoots, sap rise, buds, leaves, flowers, herbs the corn, um, nuts, fruits, berries, leaf fall it's in tune with those basic plant cycles and although it's basically a, a modern creation it's an interesting modern creation Merlin's actually doing some work now with uh, Robin Heath he's been quite inspired by Robin Heath's work and his work is really about being an indigenous person or living as an indigenous person going out and actually doing stuff with these calendars and finding out what really works you know for instance you can get a little obsessed by for instance at winter solstice well what's the exact time of solstice well solstice experientially is kind of a three day window from his point of view and I, you know, I, I concur uh, he's also been doing works on the, the simple lunar cycles you know like for instance observing uh, being quiet at, at the new moon and, and taking a retreat very 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 simple stuff but not to be underestimated experiential power so that's basically just the solar lunar year so these are some larger druid Owen cycles that we can begin to relate to and I'm going to kind of feed this into some other 13 moon calendar stuff I'm kind of coming to a thesis to relate this eventually to the processional cycles of 26,000 years. 13 years are in this system called a forest or a U year and it's called a U year because the U is the 13th sign of the Oum and every 13 years the winter solstice will return to being a U year so basically each of those years, each of the year bearers that fall on the winter solstice correspond to one of the 13 trees of the original Beth Lewis Neon that's for the consonants and uh, they begin and end with a U um, on winter solstice and uh, it's, it's great symbolism because the U is basically the tree of immortality and it symbolises death and rebirth I got into this whole Druid calendar story in a very kind of synchronistic way I was researching it with, along with the Maya calendar in 1999 and at the same time Merlin was doing his work independently and in Glastonbury there was another Druid mind calendar crossover person called Zed we all decided to make our own calendars and we all decided to start them on the same day and that day was winter solstice 1999 maybe a coincidence but it's the returning us right back to that first slide at the beginning of the talk just felt to be a really significant occurrence at that particular point if you look at the whole idea of galactic synchronization a lot of attention has gone to the end date of the Maya calendar the 13 Bacton count specifically being winter solstice 2012 but actually in terms of the uh, crossing of the galactic equator 99 was actually a lot closer in fact 98 was possibly the closest so this conjunction 99 has been described by um, Jim Fournier who's a 
uh, a uh, astronomer, uh, astrologer based in California as being like the second and minute hands of galactic alignment sweeping to a zero point. And I like that. I think that it's, um, it's a compelling image and I think that the computer animations are really a beautiful representation of that. And obviously galactic synchronisation is a much broader period of time uh, but the idea of there being some specific moment of time where these polarities shift is suggested by that. Now, the relationship of our solar system to the galactic equator and galactic centre is basically something which comes into alignment with precession. It, a winter solstice is going to be conjunct with the uh, galactic equator once every 6,500 years, which is basically a quarter of a processional cycle. So these are, are very interesting, and that's one of the reasons that I'm, you know, I find like the, it's a bit like I feel that the Druid calendars are highlighting this particular day, winter solstice 1999, and you know, there's a lot of interesting and powerful uh, evidence for this being significant. I would say that, you know, my take on it is that what better day to mark the end of a metonic cycle than a full moon winter solstice conjunction. We know that the winter solstice was extremely important. We know that the Druids measured their calendar from the night. It's the longest night. That's significant. That's a 1 in 19 year cycle, but uh, the 99 moon was actually a 133 year cycle, which is basically a peregrine full moon conjunction. And I think that's well within the possibilities of um, Druid observational talent to, to be making that, that kind of determination. They fall regularly on the um, seventh metonic cycle, so it's, uh, it's something which could, could easily have been observed. So really the, the, the leap of imagination is getting from that to a processional calendar. This is um, a representation of the Celtic zodiac, which is basically the same thing transposed onto, you know, onto uh, 13 signs of the zodiac. And yeah, it kind of works. This is with the, the great white goddess alignment. And I think that there's some interesting argument to be made for a 13 sign zodiac. One very simple thing to observe is that the 12 sign zodiac divides up procession into a pretty uneven number. It's kind of 2,000 and 100 and a bit, whereas if you divide the 20, approximately 26,000 year cycle by 13, although it doesn't work as a circle as well, what you actually get is something pretty much close to 2,000 years. But I think that the zodiacal age of about 2,000 years seems to be borne out by the facts of the kind of changes that we've seen in, in culture. So I, I think that it's worth looking at, and I'm going to come to some mathematics in a moment which I think make it even more compelling. This is kind of taking the, the, the mythological origin of a possible 13 moon calendar back to Merlin, who I think is a really key character in um, the Druid pantheon. I'm really intrigued by some of the earlier Welsh tales in which um, Merlin is a very different figure from the romantic Arthurian that came later. He's actually much more tortured. And the feeling that I get from those tales is that he was kind of the, knew that he was the last of a kind. That if you take the idea that Merlin isn't so much like a person, but a title, 
So the, the Merlin is like the kind of um, the archdruid of that particular time. That the Merlin that we're talking about here is the the last one who was really the holder of a certain kind of knowledge. And in the Welsh tales, he's confronted by Taliesin, and Taliesin appears in his life when he's actually like quite a distressed character and uh, suffering from uh, kind of uh, bouts of what we call mental illness. And Taliesin asks him a simple question which he cannot answer, which is, what is the purpose of the round table? Well, could it be that the purpose of the round table is actually the divination of the correct time? That the round table is actually a representation somehow of calendrical knowledge? That it could be the zodiac, that it could be the, uh, the 13 moon calendar? You know, I think that's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, there's another tale of Merlin in which he leaves at the end of his life in the same way that Arthur leaves in some of the mythologies across the sea. And when he leaves, he takes with him something called the 13 treasures of Britain. And uh, perhaps those 13 treasures were related to the 13 moons. And perhaps the, you know, the connection is that this 13 moon calendar is actually really begins to make sense when you have a 13 sign zodiac to go with it. And isn't it strange that we have a separation between our 12 sign zodiac and our 12 sign civil calendar? That somehow that like a break in our society between the um, kind of experiential cosmology and then the timing standard. But if you had a cosmology that was basically 13 moons and then that was reflected in a bigger cycle of 13 zodiacal ages then maybe that would be uh, a more natural political system. And perhaps it would also make sense of the 13 moon calendar better. Because as we've shown, there were megalithic moon calendars. And they, they weren't based on the 13 moon cycle. So this brings us to the long count. And these are the basic harmonics of the long count. And to understand the long count, really um, the most important thing is just to focus on the fact that it's a calendar which doesn't really talk about years. It's not fixated in the same way that the Gregorian calendar and our modern calendars are on the Earth's rotation around the Sun. Its basic unit is the day. And that's all it's based on. And some really remarkable astronomical calculations are produced by keeping this purely day-based calendar system. And this is really the calendar of the classical Maya. It, became, it, was, it was really the period when the classic Maya were living in isolation when their culture was basically involved in the pyramid building phase that the long count was at its peak and during that period they produced well I think the argument is you know, pretty difficult to dispute that it's really the most accurate harmonic calendar ever found and it does it simply by working with the day as a unit so it's days and uh, a positional kind of calculus which takes us up to higher units so one kin is one day, 20 kin is one vinal, uh, that's 20 days, um, 18 of these vinals is one ton. Now, each of the positions actually increases by 20 with the exception of this one. And I think this is a really good argument that actually this does relate to precession because the ton being 360 days is the same uh, pretty much as the, the cycle of, well there's the Egyptian calendars and the, uh, also the solar druid calendars that have a 360 day plus 5 cycle and this is also found in the Maya calendar in a, in a separate calendrical cycle called the Harb 360 plus 5 and this is, you know, it basically seems to be related to a year 
and it seems to be a, a way of accommodating the year unit and the sacred year unit into a, into a day count without really compromising the fact it's just based on days so 20 tons is one k-ton, that's 7,200 days 20 k-ton is one back-ton, 144,000 days it's an interesting number found in the book of Revelations, other kind of prophetical you know, relationships for that and then finally 13 back-tons, one long count, 1,872,000 days and there's some amazing things with days you know, you can get uh, whole numbers of, uh, you know, that we're saying like the, the um, uh, I think you know, the, the, so the John, the, the cycle of the, how many moons is it for the whole number of days? 81 full moons. Exactly 2,392 days. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there you go, it's like, and if you that's didn't... That's staggering accurate, that one's yeah. Yeah. accurate. Yeah, so great, we can quote you on staggeringly, staggeringly accurate. Staggering. This is a picture drawn by Jose Aguilas, um for the 13 Bactum count. Definitely one of his most interesting contributions to the, the Mayan time science is really drawing this parallel between the Zolkin, which is what you see down here, this 260-day harmonic module, uh, which is the basic cycle um, which is contained within the long count. And really the idea here is that this 13 Bactum cycle is like a wave it's like the, the, the wave harmonic of history I think it's a really beautiful way of expressing it that it, somehow it's basically a story and that we're coming to the end point of that story and uh, that's really just what I wanted to illustrate here you know that there is um, perhaps a meaningful progression that's related to this 13 period is the long count a processional calendar? well this is the 65 back to cycle that I was talking about 26,000 ton now 26,000 ton is a much better approximation than 26,000 years and that's really interesting and the figure is accurate for the rate of precession at the end of the long count to an accuracy of 99.44 and that includes calculations for obliquity and eccentricity so that is basically like showing a coincidence that the Maya were able to calculate for the acceleration that's inherent in the precessional cycle because the rate of precession when the long count was begun was different from that so let's contrast that achievement with our own culture which is that Simon Newcomb in 1900 was the first person to calculate the current rate of precession not the rate of precession in a thousand years time the 99.99% accuracy and basically uh, I don't think that scientists right now if you were to ask them what the rate of precession would be in a hundred years would be able to tell you because it's not even, you know, even on the data that we have, 100 years, it doesn't form a, you know, a steady line. There's been a jump in the last 20 years, more acceleration. Do you know where this 41,000 year figure comes from for the change in obliquity? Well, this is a sort of like, again, it's like a, a postulate, isn't it? It's like the, the idea that, that there's some sort of influence on the rate of precession that's causing it to accelerate that is of a longer period. And I don't know. I, I think that a lot of those theories come from hypotheses that are based on, like, uh, other cycles influencing this one. But where is the you know where is the the actual evidence for that? Because right now, I, I would say all that we've established is that there is the acceleration. I'm be interested to find out more. So I mean, my conclusion is basically uh, that the long count is a processional calendar and that it is very very accurate, but it's accurate to its end point. And you know how that was possible is really a bit of a question mark. And I would also say that it's worth looking at John Major Jenkins' work 
because you know he's been pointing out some alignments with the Mayan temples which only make sense in this age so it's to say like okay well these people are building these alignments and we know they're building them to astronomical alignments but actually they're building them to astronomical alignments thousand or so years in the future hmm well that's really interesting and you know it implies a higher order of knowledge and I would say that our understanding of the Mayan calendar is really in its infancy and you know the, the debates that are happening at the moment are kind of like children squabbling you know uh, uh, it's a bit like um, medieval uh, scientists arguing about uh, which way the sun goes around the earth is it clockwise or is it anti-clockwise <laughs> do we really know so this is um, another interesting thing that happens if you divide the 65 factors by 13 signs each zodiacal age actually works out at exactly 720,000 days specifically so no more argument about when the age of Aquarius begins it's down to a, down to a single day and uh, you know that's, I think that's, that's very well um, we could calculate it for you if you, if you wanted like, yeah. where? I'm going to come to that in a bit but again that's like you know that's my interpretation I would say you know that just this, this is just talking about rather than what age we put where the fact that 13 works it's, it's, it's difficult to make a circle which works you know it's much easier to divide a circle into 12 than it is to 13 but that's interesting because if it is a processional calendar and there are 13 zodiacal signs they're pretty you know pretty coherent so you know I've written there you know that, that point I made earlier the idea of a 13 moon calendar not really okay it's a solar lunar calendar but it doesn't really take into account the moon cycles in the way that the Metonic cycle does but is it perhaps a celestial mirror for a 13 sign zodiac this is just again my personal kind of thesis winter solstice 1999 winter solstice 2012 exactly 13 years 13 Bactons, 13 zodiacal ages, 13 moons. I called it the Great Castle of Galactic Synchronization because I thought that was uh, quite sort of fancy sounding and rather good. <laughs> so, you know, what does that really mean? Well, I did that because I was actually I was studying with Jose Arguelles and to give credit to where it's due, I, I um, spent 49 days with him in, in uh, Chile where he was doing a comprehensive set of teachings and that was 49 days of basically getting up and listening to Jose for three hours, downloading all of his information and at the very end of the last 49th session at the very end of the talk I grabbed a piece of paper and started writing this stuff down and what I wrote down was basically this 13 year period and I was really interested that there were 52 equinoxes and solstices in that period now this is very much working with Jose's work and it's um personal map and it, it's really like it's something that kind of happened to me it was like a way of seeing because I, I've been working with the idea of this, this druid calendar and I think actually this this idea happened after winter solstice it was actually in the middle of 2000 that was when it was but I was working with this map this mental map and trying to bring the druidic together with the Maya and um, it just seemed to work for me and one of the things that you know that you can do when you've got this 13 scale is you can fractal easily you can go up and down scale so 13 days 
13 moons, 13 years, 13 Bactons, 13 zodiacal ages, you can apply the, the same structures to, to those, those ideas. And I really like the fact that if you take the 13 years as a recapitulation of the whole 13 Bactan cycle, every quarter year equals 100 ton. So it was just, you know, it's just a, a way of kind of thinking about time. And just, just a personal map, really. This is a picture of uh, the idea of a castle. And really, this is just a subdivision of the Zolkin calendar. That's the 260-day calendar into five. What it does, it gives you four sections of 13. And it, the way that it works is you begin here with a red day at the beginning of a 13-day period. And you go to the end of a red day at the 13-day period. And then you jump to a white day, which is another 13-day period. That ends, you move to a blue day, 13 days, and then 13 days with a yellow period. And this is a harmonic which repeats itself five times every 260 days. And that's what he called a castle. It's also found in the uh, calendar round. And the calendar rounds of the Toltecs and the Aztec calendar uh, basically are 52-year cycles. So these are important cycles within those calendars. So this is just again recapitulating that. 13 years, 52 solstices and equinoxes, and then um, 13 free moons or groves a year. So, you know, it's a way of viewing time. And it, it, it's kind of like, you know, if we're actually to get down to a prophetic calendar, what we've got to do is we've got to take these really abstract um, mathematical ideas that are actually yielding quite a lot of information and bring them into the now somehow. And, you know, the way to do that, I mean, I'm not claiming that I'm making like any kind of, it's not like I found like the, the one true calendar, but I'm making my map up. And my map is, you know, it's, it's the way that I look at it. And it's really, it's, it's a hypothesis. It's like, you know, a way of like investigating things because you kind of need to have like a, a line of inquiry when you're, you're looking at lots and lots of data. This is Jose's map of the dream spell, which is basically the last 26 years of the um, 13 Bactin count. Um, begins in 1997 with harmonic convergence and then it reaches this kind of um, mirror point which is pretty much at the point which my 13-year calendar or um, this 13-year um, period begins and this is the last 13 years which culminate in, in 2012 actually uh, Jose's calendar uh, doesn't finish on with the solstice 2012 it finishes July 26, 2013 so basically it's a 26-year period and um, if you think about it as a kind of galactic conjunction it's kind of this is the this is the midpoint where the, the, of, of the galactic equator right here and I think that's an interesting way of viewing it and if you wanted to think of that as the solar kind this is like the solar period of conjunction it's it's accurate uh, if you're going to use a 13 moon calendar uh, and you're going to work in 13 year periods this 26 year period is really the big window of, of galactic synchronization and you can actually overlay another calendar on that which is taking the Metonic calendar and go 19 years either way of the 99 point and look at that and during that period basically we will be in conjunction with the um, galactic equator pretty much this is Jose's map, very complex but basically doing the same sort of thing that I, I talked about mine starts at 99 this is his map for the period that we're in now and um, we're in this year here, 12 storm so that's his way of looking at it So um, this is what I'm kind of working on at the moment and this is really like the, um, the edge of my theory. I kind of think that 
one of the most compelling mythological things that we have within our culture is the Arthurian mythos. Where does that fit into the whole story? Well, within some of the Arthurian stories, they are kind of like mirrors of the Christ and Twelve Disciples story, where there's actually uh, Arthur and Twelve Knights. And of course you can apply that to the Thirteen Moons. You can apply one to Arthur, and then also um, have each of the other knights the other moons. The idea that I had basically started with um, Arthur. Um, the, the Winter Solstice is often called Arthuran, and uh, Arthur being the initiator of the sequence in 99. And then uh, each of these knights corresponding to a moon. And also, this is the, um, the, the dream spell names for the tones in the 13 uh, tone cosmology of dream spell. I call it the Grail sequence because I think that what is happening here in, in, in this mythology is that we are uh, possibly um, reaching the end of the quest for the Grail. That actually the um, 13th sign is, is very fitting to be the Grail. It's the, the, the balancing feminine to Arthur's initiation. It's, uh, it's the goal. It's, it's really the, um, the, the, the summation. And I think that you know, that's possibly where we're headed with the whole 2012 experience. The, you know, the achievement of the Grail and that perhaps in a way what we're doing is we're doing a sort of countdown to a point where the Grail mythos may actually not be as relevant anymore because we may have achieved that that's just a personal take on it some of the work which I've been doing on the 13 sign zodiacs is related to the document found at René Le Chateau someone know about this? Le Serpent Rouge and uh, that it, this is something which I found very synchronistically and I am particularly interested. A lot of people talk about um, the significance of Le Serpent Rouge being related to the Grail and the Magdalene traditions, and I think that I would agree with that. But what a lot of the commentators miss about it is that it's a 13 sign zodiac, and this is actually the, um, the zodiac of the Knights Templars. So, you know, we have a tw we're using a 12 sign zodiac, and the Knights Templars are using a 13 sign zodiac. I mean, what's going on with that? That's uh, that's quite interesting. So I, I basically just took this uh, sequence and um, overlaid it with the zodiac of René Le Chateau. But what I did is I reversed the sequence of the René Le Chateau document, Le Serpent Rouge, because uh, it begins with Aquarius and ends in Capricorn. And actually the processional cycle is moving in the opposite direction. And we're moving, in terms of that, out of the age of Pisces and into the age of Aquarius. I think that fits quite nicely because then what we're actually doing is on that level we're moving into the Aquarian Age but we can also then you know, perhaps like equate the Aquarian Age with the Grail and uh, I like that model but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've kind of looked at it in, in depth and it, you know, it kind of opens up a whole uh, other story about um, the uh, importance or, or, or otherwise of uh, um, a secret society having a 13 sign zodiac and administering things like our banking system uh, while uh, we're using a 12 system zodiac it's just, just for now an interesting observation this is just a quick guided tour through the 13 years and just there are, there are four points that I want to pick out that I think are particularly interesting alignments um, the first one is the Peregrine full moon conjunction um, winter solstice 1999 this is the second one and this is an interesting picture because it's showing the eclipse on the summer solstice of 2001 again right in the centre of that period of galactic conjunction, the galactic equator I'll tell you where I was 
<laughs> I had a copy of this picture and uh, I was in Stonehenge and it was the first time that Stonehenge had been opened up on the summer solstice for ages and right yeah and something very interesting happened I took this diagram and I've been working with some of the Druids in our country for some while and uh, kind of very gently sort of trying to sort of suggest that maybe they could take a bit of an interest in the whole Mayan calendar 2012 uh, story <laughs> you know the 13 moon calendar OM stuff and um, generally speaking uh, when I began that at about 99 uh, absolutely no interest whatsoever because we had an epiphany which was quite interesting because everyone was in the stones and it was all getting a bit manic I produced this diagram and uh, it was just at the point where English heritage was about to move us out we had a kind of concord of the Druids in Stonehenge uh, I've got all the, you know, all the people in white robes around and said well this is actually what's just about to happen is that you know, we have to like, look at the fact that this eclipse is just about to occur it's not just an eclipse, it's a galactic alignment and of course this is actually quite a useful diagram nice computer animation yeah they all stood around and sort of like couldn't but agree that this happening in about 15 minutes was possibly significant since then things have been a lot more you know, kind of um, open really so this actually had an effect, this particular diagram you know, the whole idea of druidry, it's, it's a funny word, I mean, what does it really mean? It's basically, uh, you know, the word druid means oak. And I would say, ultimately, it's not like an office, it's more of a compliment. You know, if you say someone's a druid, it's like saying, you know, you're wise or whatever. So claiming that you're a druid is a bit of a funny one. It's like, you know, declaring yourself wise and such. Bit of a dangerous path, I'd say, really. But um, I think that the pursuit of this kind of information, of finding out these alignments, it's pretty much something that would have interested the people that built Stonehenge so you know in, in that tradition it was really nice to be back in the stones and uh, waving this diagram about that particular point and uh, I'm very thankful to um, uh, Nathan Vogel who did this in Chinfornia and uh, also the 13 moon uh, calendar and the mind calendar stuff which basically allowed me to be aware that like there's this galactic thing happening you know I've been aware of the um, the significance of the galactic alignment for some years and following it and seen it go from being basically very esoteric influence upon people to actually I would say now that the majority of people I talk to feel that there's something happening with 2012 and a large number of people are also basically believing or um, open to the idea that a galactic alignment is pretty much or the end of some sort of uh, the, the end of some sort of world age it's basically a good explanation for the sort of phenomenon that we're actually experiencing as a culture. So this this is a big thing, you know, to be so you know, believing that. So this is an alignment with the centre of our galaxy. Do you know what mm. star is at the centre of our galaxy? There's no name for it. No, it's too far away now. Uh, so we don't know. No, there are some extremely strange objects. Yeah. Is it a black hole or something? Yeah. Well, we know that it's uh, producing large amounts of uh, plasmic energy all of the time, and it's like a creative vortex. And so this was definitely an alignment in the summer of 2001 with yeah. the centre of our galaxy, we know that. Really. Well, yeah. broadly, yeah, broadly uh, we've been in that alignment period for <coughs> you know, a few years. I mean, the, um, um, the slide at the end talks about um, some data from an astronomer who says that basically the closest point was 1998 mm. and that basically because the, um, the, the moon, uh, the sun rather, is um, you know, a degree of size or I can't remember a degree of size, but it's basically uh, quite large. The Half a degree, thank you. Yeah, the period of conjunction is a number of years. Mm. So this whole period, this whole, you we're know... We're still in it now. Yeah, it? we're still in it now. We won't be clear until 2021. Mm. So this is just showing something that is happening on a, on a much slower basis. But 
you know, nevertheless, a uh, solar eclipse on the sun solstice is significant, and, uh, with the galactic alignment at the same time. Yeah. Um, I'll just run through the, the kind of four highlights that I kind of see. I mean, the, the next two are pretty well known. Venus Transit 2004, then paired with Venus Transit 2012, exactly eight halb later. So, in the middle of this 13-year period, you've got an 18-year period, 13 and 8, pretty significant numbers. Yeah, there it is. So, that's a pretty significant kind of uh, end of the cycle uh, marker, really, I would say. Uh, and then the the the, uh, the final one, which I'd like to point out, isn't the winter solstice uh, 2012. It's this one, uh, winter solstice 2010 lunar eclipse. That for me is interesting. Eleven years after the uh, winter solstice 1999 full moon conjunction, you know that that would put it in this kind of. We talked earlier about the. Um, Muslim calendar having a 19 and 11 cycle so here we are 11 years after the um, moon conjunction winter solstice 1999 and um, a lunar eclipse so you know that's that's significant and of course just two years to the um, to the end of the cycle at that point so I just want to kind of put out a few highlights of that 13 year period but there's loads more work to be done I mean it's uh, really uh, do a lot of in-depth analysis about the astronomical events that are happening in this period that would yield a lot more understanding about what the significance of the end of the cycle is because like you know for instance you're saying that the event in 2001 is a one every 100,000 year period and that, that's you know if, if we're to say that like the rarity of these uh, conjunctions might relate to a calendrical period as well you know that maybe maybe something's going on there that like you know that should allow us to um, take that into account to, to, to actually begin to calibrate to these cycles I, I'd say that the major effect of the of the winter solstice 2012 story is like come to Jeff's talk next next time for sure uh, to get the download on that but you know I mean just as a, a popular cultural virus it's having an enormous effect on people so um, I'm interested in this as well which is the, the last year coming to the very end and uh, in that 13-year cycle, I'm calling this the Grail year, I'm really interested in Arthur as uh, not just this historical personage, but um, actually as um, a mythological sun king. And to say that like a lot of the stuff that's come down to this call is now called Arthur is basically uh, the uh, remnants of, a, of a, a mystery tradition which actually was talking about the sun king. And you know, there's a fair amount of evidence for that kind of thing in the Arthurian legend. For instance, in some of the tellings, uh, Uther dies on Christmas Day. Well, you know, Christmas Day is um, not necessarily the Christmas Day that we have now. And then the sword on the stone was drawn on the New Year. So that's very much like the death of the Sun King. Uh, you've got the old king dying, which is the, you know, the, the sun dying. And then you've got the uh, sword of light being what confers the... Uh, power upon the new king so yep December 27th 2011 final turn of the 5200 turn long count resurrection of Arthur maybe return of the uh, knights of the round table galloping out of Glastonbury tour that's, <laughs> that's, quite, that's my like uh, prophetic alliance uh, prediction fortunately it's a long way ahead so uh, we'll have to see what happens then <laughs>